Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com, the website dedicated to the military veteran experience, and every week we introduce you to a veteran with an amazing story. This week, well, nothing short of amazing here. Uh, Words always seem to fail me when describing our next guest. She's been a Marine Corps aviation mechanic, one of the coveted door gunners in combat, a crash survivor, an above-the-knee amputee, then going on to becoming a snowboarding and a world-renowned mountaineer. But there's one word that really says it all, and that is Marine. Marine Corps retired Sergeant Kirstie Ennis has summited six of the seven highest peaks in the world and has done it with one leg. And if that's not enough, she continues to find new ways to inspire and motivate everyone and give back to the community at large. Recently in May, she turned back just 200 meters from the summit of Mount Everest in her second attempt called Climbing for a Cause, Everest Redemption. I caught up with her a few years ago before her first attempt at Mount Everest, and the story was jaw-dropping. So we'll unpack a lot of it here today. And uh, I'm just happy to introduce to you my bud and talking about her harrowing journey to the rooftop of the world, Marine Kirsty Ennis. Kirsty, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. That was a that was a fantastic, phenomenal introduction. So I appreciate that. Yeah, right on. And as we were just joking off, Mike, last time I saw you, we said goodbye before your first attempt at Everest. And uh, you were trying on what's called a summit suit. It looked like the largest like snowmobile suit you've ever seen. It was bright blue and it was like snowing flakes the size of like chicken nuggets. And I, you know, you've got the guts to climb the highest peaks in the world. I barely had the guts to drive home from your house because it's all downhill in Colorado from where I was staying, you know, a hundred miles away to where you live. God, crazy stuff. But uh, how's everything out there in Colorado right now? Uh, well, it's, I mean, it's great. Uh, yeah, the weather is pretty dry, hot, um, very windy. It's perfect uh, conditions for, for fire season. The river's high, the, the rafting's great. Um, but yeah, a little bit different than the last time you were out here. Yeah, right on. <laughs> Well, always cool. I know you're always up to something interesting. So let's, um, real quick, let's just play some catch up. I might drop some clips in here of our, uh, documentary we did several years ago called To War and Back, where you really just had me 
it just the most gripping two-hour interview I've ever done. My first deployment, loved every minute of it. You know, eight months of Afghanistan, like, give me more. But on my last deployment, I think I recognized the amount of sacrifice that you actually deal with. And in the moment, right before the helicopter crashed, you know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, what'd you do? Did you pray? I almost went right back into, like, brain mode. And then we hit the ground. Share with me a little bit about service history. Marine Corps, 17 years old, and you were like the gal that everybody hated. Pretty, <laughs> athletic, could handle your own with the boys, could play the sports. You were like from Florida, if I remember right, which is not a mountaineering yeah. state at all. But tell me about the Marine Corps and how you ended up there. Yeah, well, so that's one of um well, I'll start with one of my favorite stories, as you know, uh, my mom and my dad. I uh, got married 18 years old. Dad joins the Marine Corps right off the bat. Um, and then fast forward at 27 years old, you know, I'm like five years old. My family is living on Marine Corps Base 29 Palms. My mom comes home and tells my dad, you know, I think these female Marines are really badass. And my dad turns to my mom and says, I will never be married to a female Marine. And to which point, uh, you know, my mom basically turns around, goes out the door, goes to the recruiter's office, gets an, gets an age waiver and joins the Marine Corps. And so, like, from a very early age, I watched, um, the, you know, the two most important people in my life do something for the greater good. And I knew from a very early age that I wanted to do something to make them proud of me like I was proud of them. And I I was just raised in this culture of service, you know, to 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 do more um to do more than myself, um, to impact the, the world around me. And, um, yeah, at 17 years old, I had already uh, graduated high school at 15, but at 17, joined the Marine Corps. And, um, of course, being so young, I needed my parents' consent. And my mom, uh, because I was a pain in the ass, you know, she, she basically signed immediately. And I had to lie through my teeth to get my dad um, to sign the paperwork. And, you know, I told him that I was going to do a desk job and lo and behold, it was the furthest thing from what I was actually going to be doing. Um, I ended up being in an airframes mechanic. And then later on down the road, ended up picking up my air crew wings and became an aerial door gunner. So uh, you can imagine his, uh, <laughs> yeah, how, how excited he was about that. But, you know, <laughs> I, um, you know, when it was all said and done, I ended up serving six years in the Marine Corps as a helicopter door gunner. And um, on my last deployment, you know, I say unfortunately, but it was also, you know, it was was a blessing and a curse. Um, But on my last deployment on June 23rd, 2012, the helicopter that I was manning actually went down and um, I just sustained some pretty severe injuries, you know, everything from the traumatic brain injury, spinal cord damage, damage to my arms, my ears, my eyes, and then, um, you know, the most obvious, I ended up losing my left, left leg over time. Um, so I'm now an above the knee amputee. And a fun thing I learned from you when we first met was that you call below the knee amputees <laughs> paper cuts, because really the only significant amputee is above the knee. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Marines. Marines are yeah. such a dark dark sense of pride i love it i can only imagine being a father of a daughter you know how your dad felt that's just crazy he's got two women in the house that won't listen to him i feel like that almost every week does no one listen to what i want dad um i want to get to because you know we've shared this story a couple times and 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 i love it each time you were of course in that traumatic crash 
Marines lost their lives. You're mangled. Uh, I remember you saying that like the thing that hurt the worst was not the injury, but it was having to leave. Open up a little bit about that. So when I first got hurt, like I had no idea how badly, you know, I, I was, I was actually injured in my mind. I wanted to know where my people were. And after I finally like made my way uh, back to the makeshift, you know, hospital on Camp Bastion, I realized that I, I essentially could fit my fist through my face. I had the, like my jaw was missing on the right side. Um, all of my teeth, all, like, um, like I, I couldn't breathe on my own. My nose was broken. My orbital socket, my, like my arms were literally like dangling. Um, then of course I had no idea that my leg was damaged, you know, the way that it was. And, but none of that mattered. Like, you know, once I got back to Camp Bastion, in my mind, like I really wasn't that hurt. You know, I'd just been combat meritoriously promoted to sergeant. I was six weeks away from coming home. Um, you know, and I, I, I genuinely just felt like they were going to sew my face up, whatever we'd figure out the rest. Um, and just, you know, right out the deployment with, with the rest of my guys. And when they ended up sending me home, uh, shortly after, you know, eventually Kandahar, Germany, obviously Walter Reed, and then down to San Diego. Um, you know, I was, my, I was heartbroken. Um, uh, I was devastated that I didn't get to come home with my guys, that I didn't get to ride that one out. And, you know, I, I loved what I did. Um, you know, being combat meritoriously promoted to sergeant four and a half years in, like loved it. I didn't want to go anywhere. I wanted to be in for another 20 years. And, um, after fighting, um, through different med boards and stuff, um, I was basically found, you know, unfit for duty based due to what happened from my neck and above. Um, and that, that shattered me, you know, I, I fought for three different periods. So a year and a half, um, to be able to stay in and to, and to hear time and time again, that, you know, I, I wasn't capable. I wasn't, um, going to be an asset anymore. Like that stripped me of my purpose. And that hurt way more than any, any, any surgery that I've, I've gone through after 46 at this point or the years of recovery and rehab and everything. Like, that was the hardest part for me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I all too often think that people overlook the invisible injuries, whether that's, you know, symptoms of like PTS or the, you know, the brain injuries and everything. But I also feel like the loss of just identity overall, uh, was the most debilitating. I mean, that, that rocked my world and that sent me into a pretty heavy tailspin because at that point in time, that was all that I knew. You know, the Marine Corps told me what to do, how to dress, what I was going to eat, when I was going to show up, you know, everything about my life. And, um, and I really, yeah, I, I love the community. I love the space, the brotherhood that I was in and to lose that, that was hard. And so, um, I suffered pretty heavily with, with mental health, um, just emotional and, um, you know, um, didn't really find that will to live anymore at one point. And I'm, I'm very proud to say that, you know, I overcome it after um, a lot of work. Um, but yeah, that, that was definitely the toughest part. That is something that is so common among all of us, having that purpose. It's unlike any job you'll ever have. And when you've got a greater calling to take care of your brothers and sisters, it's, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> tough to have that taken from you, certainly through an administrative process. It didn't put the fire out in you, but there's a couple moments I want to share that really define how that fire got lit. One, I'll never forget the conversation <laughs> you and your dad had in, in the hospital. And this was during one round of surgeries. I don't know how soon it was to the accident, but you'd talked a little bit just in that last bit about going through a period where you just, you didn't know, you didn't know if you should go on. You might give up the conversation with you and your dad. Yeah share a little bit of that because he said some profound words. 
Yeah. Um, so on the one year anniversary uh, of my live day, um, or on the, on the accident, on the crash, um, that was the day that I decided that I didn't want to live anymore, June 23rd, 2013. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, God or whoever you believe in spared me yet again. And I'll never forget the moment that my dad came to me with tears in his eyes as he said, you've got to be me, you know, the enemy couldn't kill you and now you're going to do it for them. And that really was the moment that I decided I was going to turn my life around because if I, I realized as he was saying that, and my dad, again, just this big burly dude covered in tattoos and everything, he's crying. And I realized that my actions were directly impacting the people around me. And if I couldn't live for myself anymore, I needed to live for the people who had rallied behind me for so long, you know, throughout my recovery or the men and the women that I served with the men and the women who never made it home. And that, that really was um, a huge turning point um, in, in my recovery and, and how, like, I decided that I was going to live the rest of my life. Amen. Amen, sister. <laughs> I love hearing that every single time because I love that quote. And there's another quote I see used often with those that know you and that are referring to you, but it's the one about the distance and the distance between the ears. And it, <laughs> it, tell me about that. Yeah, so... Uh... One of the things that I really had to tell myself, so my, my recovery was, was awful. It's, and, and I say was, but is, you know, for the rest of my life, it's going to be an uphill battle. I mean, I just went through another surgery, gosh, last September, uh, where they took more of my leg and it, it's going to be nonstop. But when things got really hard, when things get, when, when things get dark, I tell myself that it's the six inches between my ears and what's behind my rib cage that dictate what I'm capable of. You know, if we keep our head and our heart in the right place, we can overcome absolutely anything, especially physically. And so that's what I could just keep telling myself. Like we have the power to be able to convince ourselves to continue putting one foot in front of the other time and time again. Mm. Absolutely love both of those. And I just want you to know how many times I think I've shared the latter one, uh, just, you know, with my friends or whatever, you know, I, I, I sometimes say it's a Kirsty Ennisism and, uh, <laughs> yeah. I throw I'll that out that. there when someone <laughs> needs a little charge because it's just such a brilliant way to look at life. And since that, those days in recovery in the hospitals, since that moment, your dad dropped that powerful line on you, you really do embody that it is what's between your ears and behind your rib cage that keeps you moving forward. So, um, so cool. You did move forward. Uh, when I first heard about you years and years ago, I, I, I forget whether it was snowboarding or whether it was the naked cover of ESPN magazine <laughs> body issue where you're literally rock climbing and you know, it's an artistically done shot, but like you are just demonstrating the sheer power that the human body can demonstrate and achieve. Uh, so cool, but that wasn't enough. I'm going to speed through a little bit of it here because you know, you go on to become a snowboarding champ, but then mountaineering and mountain climbing. And it always strikes me as funny because you're from Florida. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't have too many more mountains that you can climb. I mean, I, I, how you ended up getting into that, but share with me a little bit about what sparked your interest in mountain climbing. Of course, I have to bring in snowboarding in some capacity because that's really what led me to the mountains. Um, but yeah, when I was in the hospital um, in San Diego at Balboa, um, you know, I had this organization come in and ask if I had any desire to learn a winter sport. And I was thinking, absolutely. I don't care what the fuck it is. Sorry for the F-bomb there. You can end of that. But I don't care if it's like curling or anything. I just just get me out of this hospital. 
And uh, when I arrived to Breckenridge, Colorado, there was no one there that was looking for a medical clearance because my doctors flat out told me like, hey, you have to be very aware of the brain injury and you also have to be very aware of the state of your limb. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. Showed up there and nobody asked anything. So I, I saw somebody go down the hill on a snowboard and I thought, you know, that's what I want to be doing. And so sure enough, I got, I got on a snowboard, had an instructor. And within a week, I, I was just writing like, like it was nothing. And it was the most freeing experience. It gave me this confidence and this independence that I needed to really set myself up for everything that was going to come next, like the rest of the chapters of my life. And um, I ended up competing uh, alongside Team USA um, and Border Cross and Bank Solemn uh, was the uh, 2016 USASA national champion and, and all sorts of like great little accolades there. Um, but eventually the, the medals didn't mean anything like racing just didn't mean all that much. I wanted to be a good snowboarder in the backcountry on the big mountains. Like I just wanted to be good and well-rounded. I wanted to be able to like hold my own against, if you will, like able-bodied people um, and started dabbling in, um, you know, the big mountains. And I actually ended up losing my, 2016 2017 snowboarding season because I had to have surgery in November of 2016 and I was totally devastated like I thought I was going to have that shining moment of being able to put the uniform back on and representing my country and again was stripped of that so I was I was totally devastated you know again found one of those those tailspin situations um but then was presented an opportunity to go down to Africa and climb uh, the highest point down there uh Kilimanjaro just over 19,000 feet and when I got down there, like I knew, no, I still knew nothing about like climbing or hiking or any of this. It was just like I was seeking something in the altitude, something in the mountains, something in just outside uh, to, to feel alive again and to kind of, um, you know, put my energy into. And when I got down there, I was like, holy smokes, like I am strong, stubborn and stupid enough to like to be good at, at mountaineering. Like I was up and down this thing in four and a half days and it, like it, it was just easy and it felt good. And I realized that I could. Um, you know, tether humanitarian efforts to everything that I was doing in the outdoors. And that's when I hit the ground running. Like, um, you know, that's when I, I, I learned about the seven summits and I decided that I was going to continue pursuing these big mountains um, and just didn't stop. <laughs> I mean, don't tempt, don't tempt Kirsty with a goal or an objective <laughs> because you know, you're going to do it. I mean, dare, dare anybody ask you to be the first woman on Mars. And I'm fully expecting <laughs> that, you know, that you're going to pull that one off. Uh, crazy cool to just follow this and see how you have now gone from that first mountaineering experience to six of the seven biggest peaks. Of course, that's what brought us together when we did the, uh, a documentary to Warren back. Uh, we talked about, uh, the ramp up for your initial ascent the first time you tried to summit Mount Everest. That was back in 20,000 or <laughs> that was back in 2019. <laughs> um, what do I want to ask you about that? What'd you learn on the first trip or what should people know about the ascent? Um, it takes several days, of course, weeks and there's just so many nuances to mountain climbing that I gained through your Twitter feed and through your documentary or your own documenting these climbs. But um, what's it like? I know that's a basic question, but what does somebody want to know about what it takes to do that or what's a day in the life like? Um, yeah, well, I feel like climbing Everest, it's like, it's its own beast. Um, like just your way of life and 
how you have to be patient for not only yourself, but the people around you. Um, and, and honestly, how you have to remain flexible. Um, my first time out on Everest in 2019, like my biggest takeaway was actually just, you know, I put my team first and everything that I was doing, you know, like, I wanted to make sure that we finished together. We started together and I wasn't going to summit that mountain without, without my guys. And unfortunately, 600 feet from the summit, um, uh, my climbing partners ran out of oxygen. And I remember looking down at them and thinking that there was no possible way I was going to, to go on without them. Like what, like what kind of a human being would I be if, if I sent them down and something happened? I couldn't live with myself. So, um, even after my Sherpa came up to me and said, Hey, we have to go down or we can go up. They have to go down. I just told them no. Um, and, and everybody thought I was nuts for it because we, that year we were the first team up. There was no one on the mountain with us. It was absolutely empty. We were the first team up. We chased the rope fixers up. We put in the boot pack, the trail for everybody. And it was just this wild experience of, you know, I poured my heart into it. I climbed a very untraditional way. Um, I probably set the record for, for longest time up above 20,000 feet. I spent over a month above 20,000 feet in 2019. Um, and there was just a lot of lessons learned because at that point in time, um, you know, mountaineering for someone like me was, was very foreign. There was no precedent set. It was just me. I was just going to power through and figure it out. Um, and so there was, there were some huge takeaways from that, but you know, at the end of the day, it was really just being able to focus on my team. My team was showing up for me. So you better believe I was going to show up for them. Um, you know, this year, uh, my attempt was totally different. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, Turned around at the same spot, 600 feet from the summit. But it was, yeah, it was wild. So I, I went into this this summit or this attempt this year with everything that I learned from 2019. And in 2019, like I said, I spent that damn near a month above 20,000 feet. This time I was going to go in super late for what we would consider a speed ascent. But my my rotation would be, you know, was planned to be about 10 days. So I would climb above the Kumbu Icefall sleep for three nights at camp one, sleep for a few nights at camp two, then go up to three, four, and then push for a summit bid. And then unfortunately, of course, like as weather would have it, just things happen. Um, and at camp two, I ended up having to force my climbing partner. Uh, so it was myself, uh, my climbing partner, and then two Sherpa was my climbing team this year. And I had to force my climbing partner to turn around at camp two because he was, um, especially now that we, we know more, basically deathly ill. He had double pulmonary emboli. Um, and had he, not, had he continued going up, something very serious would have happened. And I was put in this situation of choosing if I was going to keep going up or go down with him. And I decided that I was going to continue going up with two people that I, I barely knew. Um, but I was way stronger, way faster than I was in 2019 and uh, flew past people on the mountain, like from Camp 2 to Camp 3, uh, camp four is a little up to camp four is a little bit slower, but like felt strong and was ready to go. And when we got up there, uh, it was predicted to be the, like the best night, like uh, of the season, uh, ended up being essentially the coldest, the windiest. They were predict- predicting zero to 50 mile an hour winds uh, on the summit. And it was 55 mile an hour winds, <laughs> just, just for like a small example. Um, but the things that I saw on the way up this year, there were so many people, there were so many permits pulled. Um, and there was a total disregard for life. I mean, the, the will to will to survive and just self-preservation. And so, um, you know, on my way up to the summit this year, again, made it right below the South Summit. 
the same spot that I turned around last time, but instead like this year looking up the mountain, I saw hundreds of headlamps. Um, and for 20 minutes, these headlamps weren't moving and people are freezing. Someone laid down at my feet in the snow, knowing that they probably weren't going to wake up if they did that and just did it anyways. And the amount of time that people were willing to stand in line and let their hands and their feet freeze or run out of oxygen for at least 90 minutes after having eight bottles of oxygen. Um, yeah, no oxygen for 90 minutes. And then you still have to get down the mountain. And when I watched all of this unfold, I just, I told myself that they're like, no, um, but this wasn't what I was going to be climbing for. And I promised my family that I was going to come home. Um, well, a alive, but then also with everything that I started with and don't get me wrong. I, 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 like everybody else out there, um, you know, I came home with, I got, got a bunch of scars, new scars. Kind of <laughs> My hands are pretty beat up still. They still don't work right. Um, but I just couldn't believe it. You know, when I was there in 2019, it was all about my team. Um, and then this year it was just self-preservation. Um, and, and that was just like, it was a huge contrast in so many ways. So it was hard for me. It was also um, hard for me to like, of course, I'm going to go back. I'm going to try and go back next year. I mean, will I go to the south side? I have no idea. Um, very much so looking into climbing from the north side now that China and Tibet's opened Everest back up. Um, but yeah, the climbing was, I learned a lot from both and the lessons were just so totally different. Did that blow your mind when you saw how many people are allowed to be on that mountain at one time? Because it doesn't sound like something they should give more than, I don't know, six crazy individuals a permit for, much less <laughs> yeah. hundreds. Well, and that's even like, so even when I say 500 permits, like that's just for the individual climber. That, that's just for Kirsty, but that doesn't count, you know, the, the supporting staff. That doesn't count the logistics or climbing Sherpa. So you can, you could almost just assume that there's going to be five or six other individuals associated with each of those permits. So there are thousands of people on the mountain at any given time like this year. And, and I hate to say it this way, but fortunately there was um, a viral chest infection that wiped out a decent amount of people at base camp because otherwise or so, I mean, there would have been hundreds more. And um, to me, like, don't get me wrong. Like I, I have a deep love um, and respect for the Nepalese and especially the Sherpa community and, and it, but it just hurts me um, to know that the mountain is um, not even the mountain, but the, the, the culture and the way of life is being so totally disrespected. Like I've worked so hard to be like, to consider myself a mountaineer. Um, like I, I used to be very embarrassed when people would be like, Oh, Kirsten is you know, the adaptive mountaineer. Cause I didn't consider myself that yet. But now that I've been through what I have over the last what, five, six, seven years in the mountains, and the decisions that I'm very proud of making when it comes to turning around and being able to make sure that I can take care of myself and the people around me, I do consider myself a mountaineer, but it hurt this year to see how many people out there just had the money to show up to take a picture. Um, there are people out there who wouldn't even know how to put their crampons on. There are people out there who were literally being like piggybacked up or like drug up on a dog leash. And it was just, yeah, it hurt my heart. Um, mm. cause it's something that I love and it's something that, that truly saved my life and something that I've been very proud of to be able to share with other people like me, whether, you know, it's their individuals, veterans, you know, civilians, whoever dealing with physical, mental or emotional situations. Like I've really prided myself on introducing, introducing them to mountaineering and uh, yeah, this experience kind of hurt. So that's crazy to think billionaires. And I think the same thing about the <laughs> yeah. space industry. Sadly, the tragedy we just witnessed in the depths of the ocean by the Titanic. Uh, you know, people 
relatively unqualified trying to do things that take significant qualifications. It just doesn't seem right. And, um, yeah, some of the pictures you've shared from the various camps along the way demonstrate how many people are up there, oxygen bottles laying around. There's some garbage here and there. And I mean, it's just, that's not what you expect to see at the rooftop of the world. Um, let's talk a little bit about your equipment because this has always been fascinating. I remember reading about how, um, you'd have to, well, first of all, you got to make your window of time to get to the next camp so that, you know, you're, you're there within the right amount of time to get set up and you're not dealing with the blackest of night and you're not dealing with crazy winds that can come out of nowhere. I mean, you're trying to do this in an organized fashion, but the gear, um, two things <laughs> you have to keep that prosthetic warm enough to keep you from getting frostbite because the cold transfers through steel and aluminum super fast and can literally freeze off, you know, what's left of, of your leg there. Um, how do you deal with that going up a mountain? How do you deal with keeping that prosthetic warm, keeping it fit and then keeping sweat from becoming an issue? Yeah. Well, and so, yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with the sweat thing. So that's always my biggest fear is because I, I overheat, I run super hot. Like I am probably the only person on the mountain at, at any given time that has my summit suit all the way unzipped and odds are I have a tank top on underneath it. Like this, like even standing still, I just, I run so hot. My house is set at 62 degrees right now because I just can't, I just can't handle it. Um, and so out on the mountain, like, especially as you're moving, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter how slow I'm moving, or uh, the time of day out there. I mean, the sun's beating off of not only you, but all the snow and ice around you. So people think that, oh, Everest is going to be, you know, negative 35 during the day, but it actually ends up feeling like 90 degrees as you're like moving from camp one to camp two. Like it is blistering hot. Um, and so for somebody like me, inside of the silicone liner, you know, that goes over my residual limb that actually keeps the prosthetic on, when sweat accumulates, like that jeopardizes the fit of everything that means that my leg could be falling off but then as temperatures change or conditions change like god forbid out of nowhere you know a blizzard rolls in and the temperatures drop significantly like my leg could then freeze to itself because of how much like sweat and everything's going on um and like you were saying this cold transfer from the ice up through you know my steel crampon foot all the way up through the aluminum components, but even more importantly, through the carbon fiber socket, which is actually what attaches to my limb. There's no R value there. So once it's cold, it is freaking cold. Um, and that's again, my number one fear. I'm not worried. I am not worried about dying or losing a finger or anything else up on the mountain. Um, and it is solely about preserving my residual limb and not losing more of what, what I, what I already have. Um, at this point in time, there is nothing out there. Um, that can actually keep my leg warm um, just because of the altitude and the cold. If anything is battery operated, it dies instantly. Um, and then again, just um, being able to, uh, you know, to, to defend against the cold transfer <laughs> through the components itself, there's nothing you can do. And the only thing that I can do, the only thing that's really saved me at this point, being able to be very aware of what I'm feeling. Like, don't get me wrong. It hurts. Like there, there is so much pain with everything that I do with my residual limb. Um, and then the cold, like I know when it's going numb, I know when we're on the verge of dealing with frostbite, frost nip, and it's just being able to be very honest with myself about it. Um, because like a, a good example is, you know, if it took me 10 hours this year to get up to the summit of Everest, it was going to take me 24 hours to get down. If my leg was, it was already experiencing, experiencing just a little bit of frostbite. 
I ended up, I would have ended up losing a lot more of my leg um, on the 24 hours descent because it's mm. not going to get any warmer. It's not going to get any better. And, and yeah, that's just a matter of, well, it's kind of like contradictory. It's a mind, like mind over matter thing. Can I continue powering through this pain? But then also just being very honest, you know, with yourself and the people around you. And I think that was also an issue this year was I knew in my heart that I didn't have the right team around me. If something got sideways, you know, in the line on the summit Ridge, mm-hmm. I didn't have my climbing partner. I didn't have the right team. And I didn't, I mean, there was obviously even just like a language barrier, like God forbid, I couldn't explain to them what was going on. Um, so. Yeah. And as you'd mentioned, think things go sideways. You get a couple hundred people in front of you, experienced yeah. climbers or not, you don't know. But if something goes wrong, the people behind you are then impacted. And share with me just a little glimpse of like some of the weather conditions that can creep up. I remember you described in one tweet when you got into one camp later than you thought you would. You said that your crew had been annihilated was the word you used by the conditions. Share with me a little glimpse at like what you're enduring when you're going up. Well, everything just changes so fast. And I think the, like one of the biggest issues this year was just the jet stream. Like the meteorologists were predicting the jet stream to go off of the summit um, and be gone for what, you know, five, six days, whatever. But then it, it would come right back. And it was something that I don't, you know, to no one's fault. It's just something like it's, it's mother nature, you know, at the end of the day, the weather and, and Everest herself, like they dictate what's going to happen. And, um, you know, there were storms that would roll in out of nowhere. There was visibility issues that would come in. Um, like, we're talking in like five, 10 minutes. So everything that we knew would get totally sideways just so, so fast. And not only that, like, again, I hate, I hate to keep bringing up like just the amount of people, but also being annihilated by not being able to control, control the circumstances around you. So to your point earlier, uh, the people ahead of me, but the people behind me, there's only one way up and one way down. So as you're going up, if you're going to pass people, you are unhooking yourself from that line and passing them on the same line. As you are going down, you are passing people on that same line. So there is just so that between the traffic jams, the time up there, like even if you're going to predict to be up there for, you know, you would assume that the speed that you're moving is going to be five hours. You better be prepared to be up there for 15 instead. Um, and if you're up there for 15, then guess what's going to happen? Every single day, the weather is going to change on you doesn't matter at what point you are on the mountain, the weather is going to change on you. Wow. And I'll use words like ice fields and avalanches and things that I've read (laughs) in other tweets of yours that literally give me nightmares. I could only imagine by some of the pictures of you, uh, a prosthetic leg with a homemade cramp on, you know, the the spiky (laughs) foot that you're literally making, because I don't think they sell them anywhere. Like you had to basically engineer your own gear. Man, it's such a testament to the will endurance. And, you know, I'll say the turning back a second time from the same camp is also a testament to your love for team, your loyalty to team. And uh, loyalty is not uncommon with Marines. Semper Fi all the way. Uh, you guys live it, breathe it. And, uh, you know, your second warm up here, sure, you didn't get the fancy photo <laughs> op at the top, but Kirsty, some hella incredible pictures on your Twitter account. Uh, the Kirsty Ennis Foundation shares everything. And, uh, let's just wrap with that. The Kirsty Ennis Foundation is really the climbing for the cause. You're doing so much to help so many. You actually worked with one organization this year to raise some funds for. Share with me about the impact that you're able to make through this mountaineering and um, how it's benefiting veterans all over the world. 
Yeah, so there's two different avenues of that. Like like you mentioned, there's the Kirstenus Foundation, which is where I recreationally, um, I'm very grateful that I get to help other veterans like me. Um, but I, I think even even more importantly is building homes for heroes. Building homes for heroes has been a huge part of my life for for quite some time, and I've been involved in a number of different ways. Um, and right now, I'm actually the lead ambassador for Building Homes for Heroes, and we provide specially adapted mortgage-free homes um, for wounded, ill, and injured veterans. And we actually just opened up the mission to help first responders as well. So I'm just very grateful to be provided opportunities to not only do what I love, but to also give back in the spaces that mean so much to me. So, yeah, I encourage everybody to check out Building Homes for Heroes. Right on. Both organizations, the Kirstianis Foundation and Building Homes for Heroes, doing incredible work, helping veterans everywhere and risking life and limb to do it. Percy, <laughs> could you just do a fundraiser that's like not so treacherous? So, you know, you lower my anxiety. Um, what's next for you? I understand there's some really, really interesting things involving mountain biking and, uh, <laughs> you know, stuff I can't even imagine any able-bodied person doing, much less... Kirstie Ennis, but I never count you out. What's on the horizon? <laughs> uh, so I'm aspiring to do the Great Divide Ride, which is a 2,600-mile transcontinental mountain bike ride, um, basically from Canada to Mexico, uh, all through the Rocky Mountains. Uh, I also want to be the first above any amputee to, uh, to swim the English Channel, so bringing back uh, full circle my 1,000-mile walk across the U.K. back in 2015, bringing some love back to the U.K., um, and then one day, hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll do the World Marathon Challenge. So seven marathons, seven continents in seven days. Easy, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. just, it's another day with Marine Corvette Christianis. <laughs> um, you're crazy, girl. You, I mean, you know that, right? You are, yes. you, you are not right. <laughs> Absolutely love it. And are you going to hold me? Are you going to hold the promise or not the promise, but what you told me uh, several years ago, you said when you, when you get up there, you were considering doing a little snowboarding on the back end of Everest. Is that? Hey, if it's, if the conditions are right, I mean, you've seen the pictures from the other climbs that I've done, you know, especially over in Russia and everything. If it's, if it's climbable and snowboardable, then I want to do it. So we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is absolutely awesome. I know you're going to revisit the peak. I know you're going to get up there. And I know you are doing one hell of a great thing for veterans everywhere. Uh, always loyal. And uh, Semper Fi Marine, Kirsty Ennis, so damn good to talk to you. Keep up the great work. And I love the pics. If you can follow Kirsty Ennis, you, you just always get really cool pictures, whether from the top of the mountain or in the water, at the beach. Just uh, looking good, kid. Looking good. Well, thank you, Phil. Now to see more of Kirstie's incredible adventures, you can follow her on all social platforms at Kirstie Ennis, and that's K-I-R-S-T-I-E-E-N-N-I-S, Kirstie Ennis, and of course at the Kirstie Ennis Foundation, and there you can see all kinds of cool events that they do through recreational therapy and mountain climbing clinics, just uh, always, always supporting our vets. You can also see the incredible ways that Building Homes for Heroes helps vets every day with mortgage-free homes. And to find out more about that program, just go to buildinghomesforheroes.org. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com, and I'll bring you another military vet with an incredible story on the next episode of CBS Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.